Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. There was a year one teacher who decided to give uh, each child in her class the first half of a collection of well-known proverbs, uh, proverbs you probably recognize, words of wisdom, if you like, and she asked them to finish the rest using their own words. Here are the responses she got. Better to be safe than punch a fifth grader. Strike while the bug is close. Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. No news is impossible. If you lie down with dogs, you'll stink in the morning. An idle mind is the best way to relax. Where there's smoke, there's pollution. A penny saved is not much. Don't put off till tomorrow what you put on to go to bed. Laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and you have to blow your nose. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. When the blind leads the blind, get out of the way. This morning, as we come, uh, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Job, we'll be looking at a poem about God's wisdom in Job chapter 28. Wisdom in the Old Testament and in the Bible is much, much, much more than knowledge, but a godly application of it with the goal of pleasing and honoring God. And it's very different than the more intellectual, philosophical uh, understanding of wisdom in Greek thought, which is the foundation of Western philosophy. Personally, I've always found this saying, and you've heard me say it, this saying helpful in distinguishing the difference between wisdom, the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is understanding that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is understanding that you do not put tomato in a fruit salad. I think that is a very simple, simplistic way of distinguishing the difference between the two, but I think it's also profound. But a brief context to chapter 28. Remember the essence of arguments put forward by Job's three friends uh, to try and explain Job's suffering? It's best summed up by this simple syllogism. God is holy, therefore God must punish all sin. Job is being punished, Therefore, Job must have sinned. Job never denies that there's some degree of truth to this argument, but he also observes, as you do as well, that life can really suck for the righteous. But the primary reason for Job's pushback is that their arguments do not apply to him because he doesn't believe that he has committed any secret sin that he's being punished for. Job believes, sincerely believes that he's innocent and he insists on meeting God face to face so that he can be vindicated by God and also so that God can explain to him why the righteous suffer. Indeed, God obliges and speaks to Job in chapters 38 to 41, our focus next week. 
Last week, we looked at the final cycle of dialogues between Job and his three friends. They're done with each other. In in chapter 28, we find Job in deep thought, in deep reflection about God's wisdom. As his friends have been miserable comforters and obviously lack wisdom as well. Now, it is worth noting that there's much disagreement among scholars about the chapter. Some say the chapter was inserted by the author at a much later date date, because the way it's written, the language, the words, just doesn't seem to be consistent with what we've read so far coming out from Job. Then there are others who insist that chapter 28 is indeed a speech of Job. At the end of the day, whatever views you subscribe to, it doesn't change the content of Job 28. The theme of Job in the chapter in many ways is a continuation of Job's comments in back in chapter 27, verse 11, where he declared, I will teach you, as in his friends, about the power of God, the ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. The poem is constructed around the question found in verses 12 and 20. Where can wisdom be found? Where can God's wisdom be found? And where does understanding dwell? And so we find Job shifting from his quest for justice to wisdom. And he makes three points about God's wisdom. Number one, God's wisdom is elusive. God's wisdom is elusive. Verses 1 to 11 assert that for all of our industry and ingenuity in mining precious metals and stones from the earth, mankind have failed completely to unearth wisdom. Let me read verses 1 to 6. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the furthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contain nuggets of gold. But mankind still cannot find wisdom. The second point that Job makes about wisdom is that God's wisdom is the real treasure. It's priceless. Verses 13 to 19, where can wisdom be found? Where does dwell, uh, understanding dwell? No mortal com- comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me either. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its prize be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies, the topaz of Kush, whatever that stone looks like, cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought. God's wisdom cannot be bought with pure gold because wisdom is worth much more than that. A third point Job makes from verses 20 to 28 is that God 
alone has this wisdom, this wisdom that's elusive, this wisdom that's priceless. God has it. And the key that opens the door to the path of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, is the fear of the Lord. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, verses 21, and then jump from 23 to 28. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. And he confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. We'll come back to wisdom shortly. But let's go on to Job chapters 29 to 31. In a nutshell, this is Job's final monologue. In the final monologue, Job does three things, or expresses three things. Number one, he looks back at his blissful, blessed life before his life of pain and sorrow began. He looks back at his blessed life before his life of pain and sorrow began. I can imagine Job choking back tears as he reminisces on his past. Verses 2 to 6, chapter 29. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. So he's saying there, you know, before my life of pain and suffering, I felt very close to God. We were buddies, we were intimate, but not anymore. Oh, for the days I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out the streams of olive oil. He sense his pain. He's lost so much. Job's faith in the Lord. Job, as an upright man who fears the Lord and shuns evil, comes through very clearly as well as he reflects. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. He's not gloating. He's just talking about his life before his life of suffering and pain. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked. I snatched the victims from their teeth. Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on the ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smile at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and said as their chief, I dwelled as king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. An amazing man. He's anything but the sinful worm of a person his friends accused him of. 
If you thought that was painful, the second thing he does is even more painful. Now he contrasts his past with the present suffering and humiliation that he's experiencing. That's found in chapter 30. I'll read to you verses 1, 9 to 10, 16 to 17, and 20 to 22. But now they mock me. Those who looked up to me, now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheep dogs, and now their sons mock me in songs. I've become a byword among them. They detest me, and they keep their distance. And you know why they do that, right? Because they firmly believe that Job must have committed some secret sin that God is judging him for. So, from a person whom people looked up to, people were just wanting to avoid him totally. You're a sinner. You must have done something really bad. And you're paying the price for it. You reap what you sow. And we don't want to hang out with you. We don't want to be seen next to you. We don't want to be seen in your company. You are corrupted. You are an immoral person. We don't know what. We don't know how. But you are bad to be with. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. I cry out to you, O God. You do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. It's not the truth, but that's how Job feels. You snatch me up and you drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. We don't matter to you anymore, God. That's what, it, that's what I feel. Despite his horrible state, what upsets and what confuses Job the most is that he believes he's innocent and he cannot understand why he's suffering. So in chapter 31, in his final speech, Job makes one more impassioned plea to God, albeit from his limited perspective about his innocence. Riddle Barger, a theologian, explains, we have in chapter 31 what amounts to an oath of covenant allegiance. In such an oath, the speaker calls down the covenant curses upon himself if it can be proved that he has violated any of the terms of the covenant. Now, this discourse sets the stage for Job's life-changing encounter with God that we find in chapters 38 to 41. But before that happens, Elihu, a new character, appears out of nowhere and evidently has been listening in to all the conversations back and forth and th uh, back and fro between uh, Job and his three friends. And he delivers a long speech from 32 to 37. We will look at this next week as well, but only very briefly. So there are three points about wisdom that I want to expand on a little bit more. The first is God's wisdom is priceless. It is worth more than rubies. Let me read to you again from verses 12 to 15. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? 
No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. In May of 2012, a 32-carat Burmese ruby diamond ring was sold for 6.7 million U.S. dollars. It's worth, obviously, much, much more than that. Back then, it was a new world record price for any ruby sold at an auction. But as valuable as rubies are, have a look at that picture and imagine you with this hunk of a stone But as valuable as that ruby is, we're told in Proverbs 8, 11, something very stunning. Job has already alluded to it. King Solomon himself writes, for wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things that may be desired cannot be compared to it. King Solomon is essentially saying, we have a choice. If you have a choice between God's wisdom and a 6.7 million U.S. dollar diamond ring back in 2000, worth worth $6.7 million back in 2012, choose wisdom. How many of you would choose wisdom? If you had a 6.7 diamond ring, You know, a genie appears. You only have one wish. What is your wish? 6.7 million diamond ring? God's wisdom. What would you choose? I know what I would choose. And it's not wisdom. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Uh, 6.7 million. That's, That's a lot of dough. I can live quite comfortably for the rest of my life. What would you choose? How much value and worth do you place on God's wisdom? Job says the worth of God's wisdom is immeasurable. The second point about wisdom is this. Jesus is the wisdom of God made flesh. Jesus is the wisdom of God made flesh. That is why wisdom is above rubies. You fail to comprehend uh, rubies and wisdom in point one. Hopefully, in this next point, you've made your decision much with, with greater ease. If you had a choice between rubies and Jesus, how about that? Who would you choose? What would you choose? I hope your answer is Jesus. Of course, Jesus. Of course, I would choose Jesus. Mike Mason in his book, The Gospel According to Job, explains at its deepest level, Job's poem on wisdom in chapter 28 is really a mystical lament on the fact that true wisdom is as yet unattainable since the world has not yet seen Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a typo error there, excuse 
in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The apostle Paul in denouncing worldly wisdom makes the following assertion in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who say, preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after uh, 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 wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, stumbling block, and to the Greeks, absolute hogwash and foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, the wisdom that Job and his friends, the, the wisdom that Job was seeking after, and that his friends assumed they had, while it was elusive back then, it is no longer the case for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is why the Apostle James gives this very simple instruction in James 1.5. Do you lack wisdom? Are you after God's wisdom? Ask God. Ask God. You can find him in God's word, in his very revealed word. The wisdom of God is in your devices, with you 24-7. God's word. Ask. And Jesus will sit alongside you, and coach you, mentor you, speak to your heart from his word and impart his wisdom to you. And finally, the fear of the Lord is the key to obtaining and accessing God's wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord is something that's repeatedly spoken of in the Bible from start to finish as being central in our relationship with God. Psalms 2:11, serve the Lord with fear, but rejoice. Rejoice with trembling. It's an odd combination of words. Rejoice, but rejoice with trembling. Psalm 25, verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. Who make, he makes his covenant known to them. And earlier we read this, Psalms 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So in these verses, we see the coexistence of fear and joy, fear and intimacy, fear and favor. They not only go together, they're absolutely fundamental in how we are to relate to God. You can't have one without the other. Joy without the fear of the Lord is not true joy. Favor without the fear of the Lord is not true favor. Intimacy without the fear of the Lord 
That's not true intimacy. However, it is critical that we remember that the fear spoken of is reverential, respectful, loving, healthy fear, if you like. Not the kind that Bertrand Russell talked about in his critique of Christianity in the early 20th century, in which he argued that religion, quote, religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. Fear is the part of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion has gone hand in hand. It is because fear is at the basis of those two things. No, the fear of the Lord has got nothing to do with the kind of fear that Bertrand Russell is talking about there. The fear of the Lord is not destructive. It is not debilitating, but empowering, full of life and constructive. Let me illustrate. Take, for instance, fire. A lot of good things about fire. It can be used to cook. It can be used to heat up a room. But fire is also powerfully devastating, like the bushfires that we read about in 2019 and 2020, which claimed 33 lives, including nine firefighters. Thousands of houses were lost and over 17 million hectares of land were burned in that fire. Now have a look at Niagara Falls, the iconic, natural, majestic wonder of the world. But it demands full respect. It demands fearful respect. In Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, USA, you can find bisons. They can weigh in at over 900 kilograms. Let's picture the animal, that beast, weighing 900 kilograms, and it can run at the speed of 55 kilometers per hour. Their hooves and horns are lethal. Wolves will only hunt for bison in a large pack because of their aggressive nature. Is it any wonder that a traveler website has this advice for tourists going into Yellowstone National Park? I quote, unless you're sure you can make it back to your car in the time it takes for a bison to run 25 yards or 23 meters or the length of two school buses in less than 1.5 seconds, it is best to take a step back. It's fancy that. Length of distance of uh, two buses, 1.5 seconds, boom. Don't mess with the bison. Have a, have a healthy respect of these beautiful creatures. They are beautiful. Look at them. Be respectful. But what does it look like practically? What does it look like practically to fear the Lord? I think Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 7 gives us a clue. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Underline the next line. In all of your ways, in all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not, and underline this next one as well, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. 
We see clearly here that our dependence, our reliance on God is not based on our circumstances. In other words, we don't only turn to God when we run out of options, which we often do, right? We pray as an absolute last resort. We will do everything by ourselves. We'll try and fix it by ourselves. We will turn to ourselves for answers and solutions. And only when we have run out of options, only when we have hit the wall, only when we can't do any more, only when we find ourselves at the bottom of the barrel, then we go, God, I turn to you now. And that's not what Proverbs 3 is saying. Only turn to the Lord when you run out of options. Only turn to the Lord when you're really desperate. Only turn to the Lord when you can't do anything else anymore and when people can't help you anymore. And we do not certainly turn to God only because we think it will get us what we want. And it's also something that we often do. Yes, Lord, I'll pray. I trust you. And because I'm trusting you, life will be great. I trust you, and maybe you will give me the job that I want, that I prefer. See, we do this bargaining. We use prayer as a bargaining chip. We use prayer as a means of earning from God what we want. God, if I pray long enough, if I pray hard enough, then I should be entitled to that job. And when that job doesn't come about, what, what, what do we often do? We get cranky and go, God, I prayed. Can't believe that. I prayed for six months, diligently, every day, every morning. I get up at the same time, and I trust you. you your word says, trust the Lord with all of your heart and lean out on your own understanding. What do you think I've been doing for the past six months, God? Faithfully, mind you. And that job was given to my frenemy. Can't believe this. It could have gone to anybody else, but it went to Jack. It went to Karen. And so what is the point, trust, what is the point in trusting you? What is the point in submitting my ways to you? Have you had that conversation with God? I have. What is the point? Why bother? Why bother? And that is a bad reason for trusting God. So that you'll get what you want. The fear of the Lord is to see that our dependence, our reliance on God is first and foremost because of who he is and because of who we are. I repeat that. The fear of the Lord is, is to understand that our dependence and our reliance on God is first and foremost because of who he is and who we are, namely, God is God and we are not. That's it. That is why we turn to God. That is why we rely on Him. Because God is God. 
and we are not. And to be wise in our own eyes is the failure to see this fundamental and essential truth. That is what it means to be wise in your own eyes. It's the failure to give due recognition to God, that he is God and I am not. And God will expand on this from chapters 38 to 41. Folks, we need to believe less and less and less in our own hype. And I think in the illustration I gave you at the start, gives us a glimpse of the contrast between God's wisdom and our wisdom. I really believe sometimes God gives his proverbs. Please fill in the rest. And he shakes his head at the answers we give, just like we, you know, we laugh at those answers because it's cute. And really, we're like kids when it comes to wisdom. Fill in the blanks. Fill in, I've given you half of this proverb, fill in the rest. Where there is smoke, there is now, a repercussion of this means also, and this is another critical point, a repercussion of this also means that we willingly, willingly and intentionally seek out and listen to advice. Not approval, not agreement, to listen and seek out for advice, for godly counsel from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of fools seem right to them. You can rephrase it this way. Fools are wise in their eyes. Fools are wise in their own eyes. But the wise listen to advice. And this warning from Proverbs 26, verse 12, you see a person wise in their own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for them. A person who's wise in their eyes is actually far worse than a fool. A fool is wise in their eyes, but someone who's wise in their eyes is worse than a fool. So what do you reckon? Is wisdom priceless to you? That's the first point. You regard wisdom, God's wisdom is priceless, worth more than rubies. You put the last slide up. Do we see that Jesus is the wisdom of God made flesh? And do we understand that to get this wisdom, to access this wisdom, we need the fear of the Lord? So we can say to the Apostle James, yes, asking is important, but we also need to come to God with that sense of the fear of the Lord. Lord, I need wisdom because I don't want to be wise in my own eyes. I need wisdom because I lack it. I need wisdom because you are God and I am not God. Help me. Help me, help me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to begin by acknowledging that we are wise in our own eyes. We're often wise in our own eyes. And this morning, we repent of that. 
we repent of our arrogance. We repent of our overweening pride. We're foolish. We're worse than fools to think that we have got, we have got it. We, we, we can manage. We can solve the problems that we face in life. And you're just a byword. And often that's how we are, Lord. As someone said, even though we are Christians in name, in practice we're atheists. We often go, go about our business paying lip service to you. We go about living our lives occasionally acknowledging you. And when we acknowledge you, it's, it's, it's done without any faith. It is done half-heartedly. It is done religiously, and it's not heartfelt. And so we want to repent from that this morning. We ask by your Spirit's power and, and grace that you will work in our hearts those three things that we've spoken about this, this morning. Lord, help us see. Take the, 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 the scales off so that we might catch a glimpse of the pricelessness of God's wisdom. And as we see it, we would seek after it with all of our hearts. And help us see, Lord, that Jesus is the source of that wisdom. That Jesus is wisdom. And thirdly, Lord, teach us what it means daily to walk in the fear of the Lord. To be reverential, to be respectful, to be loving, and to be healthy in our fear of you. For that is the key to walking, to receiving and walking in your wisdom. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.